Today we're continuing in our sermon series following Easter Sunday, where we're considering what it was like for the early church to be the church in a world that presented them so many obstacles, where there were people who uh, agreed with them, disagreed with them, where their organization felt interrupted. So we're considering what it, what it meant for them and what it looked like for them to be the church and trying to consider how that translates to our world today. How are we being called to be the church in times that are presenting us with unusual obstacles, with changes, with uh, a little bit of interruption to the things that we have grown accustomed to. So in continuing with our sermon series, I'm going to invite you to join me in reading along with Acts 28 verses 23 through 31. After they, they being uh, the Jewish people, a group of Jewish people in Rome, after they had set a day to meet with him and being Paul, They came to Paul at his lodgings in great numbers. From morning until evening, he explained the matter to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some of them were convinced by what he had said, while others refused to believe. So they disagreed with one another, and as they were leaving... Paul made one further statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah, go to this people and say, you will indeed listen, but never understand. You will indeed look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and their ears are hard of hearing. And they have shut their eyes so that they might not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. Let it be known to you then that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Friends, if you will, please join me as we pray. God, we ask that you will open our hearts to a greater understanding of your calling to us as your people, of your love for us as your creation. We pray that you will pour out your gift of preaching that I might not misrepresent you in ways that are untrue to your character and that you will pour out your gift of understanding and interpreting that together we might have a clear view of who you are asking us to be. We ask, Lord, that we will be good stewards of your good news, presenting it as good to one another, but also not doubting it as being good for ourselves. So we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let me tell you a story about Paul. Paul was a really devout Jew. He came to believe in Jesus through a really dramatic circumstance Because Paul was a really devout Jew, he had made it his life's work to round up the people who were not as devout as he was and arrest them. 
namely arresting those Jews who were professing that faith, that new faith in Jesus Christ. So while he was on his way to arrest some of these new believers in Jesus, he was struck blind off of his horse, knocked to the ground by a vision of the risen Christ. After having his sight restored by a man named Ananias, just as he was told was going to happen by Jesus in his vision, Paul changed course, he changed names, and he changed his life's work. From then on, Paul began preaching Jesus as good news. Now, Paul really believed that this message of good news from Jesus was meant for everyone. And so he would preach to Jews and to non-Jews alike. But particularly, he liked to preach to people who were not Jewish. He had to argue with other Jewish believers who had faith in Jesus in order to preach to non-Jews. Because some said that people who came to believe in Jesus still had to practice the rituals of Judaism. Namely, they said that anyone who came to believe in Jesus still had to be circumcised. Paul's argument was that requiring adult circumcision would really put a damper on the message of Jesus Christ as being good news. And so it took some convincing, but eventually the new Christian leadership acquiesced and they sent Paul and a few buddies of his off of, of his to, off to preach to all the non-Jews all around the Mediterranean. And so Paul and his friends, they went to Ephesus, Corinth, Thessalonica, Antioch, Galatia, occasionally popping back to Jerusalem to visit with the Christian leadership and to share in all of the successes that they had encountered as they traveled. On his last trip to Jerusalem, after being received warmly by that Christian leadership, Paul was suddenly seized by a mob outside of the temple because he dared to bring these non-Jewish believers in Jesus into the temple for washing and worship. Paul was only able to escape that angry mob by surrendering to a group of Roman soldiers who were standing nearby. So whereas before he had to defend himself to the Jewish leaders in the temple, now he was having to defend himself to the Roman government. And so the Roman government, they put him on a ship to Rome to stand trial for his alleged crimes. However, the boat that he's on shipwrecks in Malta. And the people of Malta aren't quite sure what to make of him. After all, he appears to have really bad luck. He's a prisoner taken against his will on a ship that then shipwrecks. And then as they're settling in for a night, a viper latches on to Paul's hand, which he just shakes into the evening fire, completely unharmed. So then the people of Malta decide that Paul is not unlucky, but quite the opposite, that Paul is a god. And even then it doesn't really seem to alter Paul's thought or his mission or his goals. Even while he is in custody, even when he is shipwrecked, even while he is shaking vipers off of his hand and having people declare him a God, 
Paul continues to live steadily by a gospel that he has now preached for over 15 years. Finally, Paul and the Roman guards, they hitch a ride with a passing ship. They make it to Rome, which is where we get to our passage for today. The Jews in Rome, they've heard things about Paul, not good things. He knows this. And so he says to them, I'm not sure if you're going to try and kill me or not. To which the local Jews reply with something like, yeah, well, we haven't really heard good things about you. So, but we want to hear what you have to say first. And so that is when they arrange this time to sit down together. Meeting in Paul's house where he is under house arrest, living with a Roman soldier. That is when Paul tries to convince them about Jesus by using the prophets and the law from the Hebrew Bible. That's when some are convinced by what Paul has to say and some are not. And that's when Paul reminds them of this passage from the ancient prophet Isaiah saying, you're going to listen with your ears, but you won't hear a word. You're going to stare with your eyes, but you won't see a thing. These people's hearts have grown dull. They stick their fingers in their ears so they won't have to listen. They screw their eyes shut so that they won't have to look, so that they won't have to deal with me, with God, face to face. And let me heal them. So then Paul leaves them after seeing that with a summation of his own life's work. A reminder that the non-Jews will hear what he has to say about Jesus and that they will recognize it for what it is. They will recognize it as good news without delay or hesitation, without judgment or argument. Paul knows that this is how the non-Jews are going to respond to what he has to say about Jesus because it's how thousands of people outside of the Jewish faith have responded to the, his message of Jesus for nearly two decades. It's hard, it's hard to interpret the tone that Paul is using when he says, all of this, when he says that passage from Isaiah, when he tells them that the Gentiles are going to accept this, it's not really a cheerful word. I sometimes think that maybe it's because Paul had a habit of saying things like this, that people wanted to kill him wherever he went. It leaves us with a lot of questions. Is he trying to get them to appeal to their own traditions to get them to look at their scriptures and see a Messiah? Or is he just outright accusing them of being like those people in Isaiah who are hard-hearted, blind, and deaf? Or is he saying that too late, they've already missed their chance. This was their option. And from now on, it's only the non-Jewish outsiders who are going to take their place in God's kingdom. It's hard to tell what is being insinuated here. But I'll tell you what I think. I think that given the fact that it says that Paul continued to live in that place in Rome for two more years without another plot 
against his life. Chances are he probably wasn't trying to make enemies in quoting Isaiah and talking about the non-Jews. I think that Paul had just spent a really long day with people whom he had never met before, but with people whom were bringing him arguments that he had heard time and time again. And I really imagine that Paul patiently but passionately worked through each of their questions and challenges and skepticisms one by one as he had done so many times in his time in ministry. I think that during that conversation, Paul recognized that there are some people who will just argue about everything and yet stand on nothing. I think he saw lots of people who were leaving his house so that they could go and procrastinate on making up their minds about what he was saying. Procrastinate either by arguing two sides until eternity or by putting off that challenging work of really thinking things through. And so I think that Paul wanted to remind them that if they took the time to understand these promises of Jesus with their heart, rather than just making sense of them with their mind, then the only thing that they stood to lose by putting their faith in Jesus, the only thing they stood to lose was their pain and their hurt, was their shame and their disappointment. Remember that long story that got Paul to this moment with these people here in Rome? Paul had put a lot of miles on what was once a very new faith in Jesus Christ. And his faith had buoyed him up time and time again through blindness, shame, humility, through disagreements, three mission journeys, an angry mob, through arrest, trials, shipwrecks, vipers, imprisonment. Paul intimately knew the value in urgently grasping this faith. And so I don't think that Paul was trying to be adversarial with the crowd as they left his home that day. Instead, I think he was trying to urge them not to procrastinate, not to delay on claiming a faith that he knew from his own personal experience would only help and heal them and not harm them. I believe that Paul didn't want anyone to leave that day and let all that he had said languish in the purgatory of procrastination. And let me tell you, I really understand procrastination. I am an expert at it. I, I think maybe there are some others of you out there that might be experts at it too. Just a hunch. Mark Twain once said, don't put it off until tomorrow what you can put off until the day after tomorrow. I love that. It's a great motto, but it hasn't served me very well. <laughs> Some people are the kind of procrastinators who put off things that disgust them or that are unpleasant, like changing a moldy shower curtain or populating a really boring spreadsheet. But that's not often why I procrastinate. 
I tend to procrastinate on the things that I feel really deeply about. On the email that I want to give a little extra thought to or on writing a paper on a subject that I'm really passionate about or even on that run that I'm really looking forward to so that I could clear my head. I think a lot of times we as humans believe that we procrastinate because we think we're lazy or because we think that somehow we're lacking good time management skills. Procrastination is often talked about as a lack of self-control. But there's a lot of studies about why we procrastinate. And one of the things that we know is that procrastination has absolutely nothing to do with a lack of self-control or with time management. Researchers have found that we procrastinate because we can't cope with our emotions. Because we don't know how to handle the negative emotions or the bad moods that we have about the tasks that we have to do. For example, I'll procrastinate on that email, not because I've left it too late, but because I'm afraid that I might come across as shallow. Or I'll delay on writing that paper, not because I didn't do enough research, but because I'm afraid that that paper won't be good enough, won't portray me as smart enough. In the words of Dr. Tim Peichel, he says, procrastination is an emotion regulation problem, not a time management problem. Procrastination is an emotion regulation problem, not a time management problem. We want to feel better right now. We want to feel less afraid, less insecure, less anxious. And so we put it off. Yeah, we're delaying, delaying the inevitable, but our human minds, what we know is that our human minds don't comprehend our future selves very well. We're really hardwired to prioritize our short-term needs ahead of our long-term needs. We see our future selves like we see a stranger. And so to feel better right now, we procrastinate. We continue to weigh our options. We put it out of our minds. We find something else that we, are, we know is still very important to do. Even though we know that it's going to cause us more stress, more hurt more pain down the road. The unfortunate thing is that we can't just tell ourselves to not procrastinate. However, researchers have found that there really is a potential solution. To rewire any habit, we have to give our brains what Dr. Judson Brewer refers to as a bigger, better offer or in his terms, a BBO. When it comes to procrastination, we have to find a better reward than just avoidance. A reward that addresses not what has to be done, but that addresses our feelings that we are trying to avoid in that present, in that present moment without causing harm to our future selves. And the interesting thing is that the two things that researchers have found to be the most effective BBOs cannot be found in a planner 
or in some sort of regulation, external regulation. The two most effective BBOs, the two better offers are compassion and forgiveness. Forgiveness for when we procrastinate and put ourselves into the same cycle yet again. And compassion for recognizing and validating the emotions and the circumstances that are causing us to feel so distressed. A friend of mine reminded me this week of a C.S. Lewis quote. A familiar captivity is frequently more desirable than an unfamiliar freedom. Familiar captivity is frequently more desirable than an unfamiliar freedom. And I can recognize that tendency in me. I can recognize how I sometimes prefer the familiar stress and shame of not following through on something, of not making up my mind on something, over the unfamiliar freedom of forgiveness and compassion. Sometimes I think there's something in me that doesn't always believe that I am worth those two good things. And I think that the people who visited Paul that day, I think that they might have recognized that tendency in themselves as well. It was much easier for them to leave Paul's house in confusion and disagreement and the stress of bickering than it was for them to place their hope in what Paul was trying to say about Jesus. It was much easier for them to push aside these ideas that forgiveness and compassion and freedom awaited them in Christ when it was, than it was for them to confront their discomfort and their doubt and their fear of being deceived by yet another failed Messiah. Paul, that day, with these people in his house, Paul was laying out a huge, bigger, better offer in the person of Jesus Christ, who absolutely trampled death. Paul knew from his life's experience that Jesus was a much bigger, better offer than their delay or their procrastination. If only they could see it. If only they wouldn't walk away from it. That same BBO that Paul extended to the guests in his home that day, that same big, bigger, better offer of freedom from fear, of release from shame, of hope in the presence of death, of a buoyant faith in the things that are so crushingly certain. That same bigger, better offer that Paul extended to the guests in his home that day is the same bigger, better offer that is extended into the world that day that Jesus Christ is resurrected from the grave. It is the same bigger, better offer that is extended to you and to me 
today, but also each and every moment of each and every day. My friends, whatever emotions we bring to our spiritual health that cause us to procrastinate in exercising faith, in exercising goodness or forgiveness or compassion for others or for ourselves, whatever we are bringing into our own spiritual life that is causing us to procrastinate on living into who we are called to be, emotions of shame or fear or insecurity. I just want to remind us that God meets us with compassion and forgiveness for whatever it is that we carry around with us. I want to remind us that the bigger, better offer it is still being extended to you and to me. And there's absolutely nothing that can keep us from it.